0: The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform.
1: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 5th of February, 2024, on Monaco Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermack. Coming up on today's programme, the self-styled, world's coolest dictator puts himself up for election in El Salvador. After that, while the U.S. strikes a series of targets in the Middle East, politicians at home are talking about this.
0: As opposed to detaining
2: any illegal immigrant, Biden instead has let them all loose across the entire country.
1: Could a U.S. Senate deal on the border unlock funding for Ukraine? We'll also be looking at the final presidential debate ahead of Indonesia's elections We'll have a roundup of the day's papers from Fernando Augusto Pacheco and then Monaco's Laura Kramer brings us the latest from the London Critics Circle Awards, Laura. That's
3: right. Oppenheimer left empty-handed, but I did speak to the winners of The Zone of Interest and All of Us Strangers, including the actor formerly known as Hot Priest.
1: Well, we can't wait for that one, can we? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Jermak. We start today's show in El Salvador, where President Nayib Bukele yesterday won another term in office. This despite being quite clear about the fact that he has no real love for democracy and dubbing himself the world's coolest dictator. Voters rewarded Bukele for a fierce crackdown on crime and gangs that had once ravaged El Salvador and prompted many to flee the country and turn up at the U.S. border. Well, Dr. Christopher Sabatini is Senior Fellow for Latin America at Chatham House. He joins me now. Chris, let's just start with how popular is Bukele? How much of this election win yesterday was genuine in that sense?
2: It was genuine. I mean, he's there have been lots of credible allegations of him employing bots and entire teams of people to basically flood social media with positive messages. But the truth is, he's popular. Uh, he won over 85 percent of the vote. His party in a newly shrunk down Congress won all but two of the seats. I mean, there was some ger- gerrymandering there. But the truth is, he, he answered a concern that most Ven- most El Salvadorans had, which is crime. Uh, and crime is down. He's, he's jailed over 70,000 people um, and people can you know, play back in the streets. Businesses are opening. Um, it used to be a war zone and now it's now it looks like a normal functioning country. But at what cost is the question?
1: Well, that is exactly the cost. And I just wonder then, is this a kind of classic case of the ends justifying the means? Okay. Things had gotten so bad in El Salvador that voters just don't care how things are
2: done as long as it's been sorted out. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there is sort of a Maslowian hierarchy here. And the first thing that people often want is security. They want um, to be free from extortion. They want to be free to be able to walk in the streets, have their children play in playgrounds. And now they can do that. And he answered this. And, you know, the truth is, is past politicians, uh, presidents and and mayors failed to do this. And here comes this guy, 42 year old, wears his baseball hat backwards, uh, which I don't think qualifies him as cool. Um, but he, he effectively, you know, answers people and, and you know, he's, the, the place is now stable. He's, he's done some weird things. Like he's converted the national currency to Bitcoin. Um, and he's opening up a huge Bitcoin, uh, mining facility in El Salvador, but at least when, it, you know, other the voters are willing to overlook those kind of fantasy actions and the backwards baseball hat, um, because he delivers what they want, which is security. Well, and, Is
1: that sustainable in your mind, Chris? I mean, going forward now, he does have another term. He's arrested 75,000 Salvadorans, about 1% of the population. Can he keep this up in another term? Or is this all going to come kind of crashing down on him?
2: You know, the truth is, there's no pressure except from some human rights groups um, to release them. I mean, you're right, he can't keep them in there indefinitely, although he did build a Forty thousand capacity, uh, maximum security prison, presumably to keep people there for a long time. Um, he's lowered the age that people can, uh, inmates can be uh, served time in prison for a longer sentence. Um, you know, it remains to be seen. Um, right now, it is it is clean. Um, it is clear uh, people want it to main remain that way. And you know, if he starts to release people and crime spikes back up, he'll have pressure to do something. But you know, the question is is really to what extent his you know overwhelming control over the, the court now, the Congress, the police, how long that's going to be sustainable. And you know, at a certain point, I think history is an indication here, not just in Latin America, but absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, and at what point this will lead to an erosion and corruption of the power structure that could lead to deals with gangs, could lead to another spike in violence and those things. And again, history, if it's any clue, is, is not going to be fair to Bukele in a ne- second term.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, to that point, I guess, you know, you, you'd wonder almost why somebody who styles himself as a dictator would even put himself, uh, you know, in, in the polls up for election. But is this part of the, the point in a way kind of what you're suggesting? He now has this huge majority that you're talking about. He's looking at constitutional changes. I mean, can we expect another election down the line? Or is this
2: kind of the end of the road if he has his way? You know, it's funny you, you say that about, about you know self-proclaimed dictators and elections. The truth is even self-proclaimed dictators um, or, or self-loathing dictators, um, need to have elections. They're a form of legitimacy. In North Korea, they have them. In Russia, they have them. In Belarus, they have them. That's true in El Salvador, too. So there'll still be elections. The question is whether they'll still matter. This, as you'd asked in the first question, Chris, um, by all accounts, was a relatively free and fair election. So for now, he's popular. But I, you know, this, dictators uh, don't tend to like uh, declining popularity, and they don't like to be thrown out of office. And so when the time comes, I, I would expect, if I can dare out on a limb here, um, that that he'll do everything he can to make sure that he stays in power and rig the elections. Right now, he doesn't have to. Now, Chris, we'll be talking
1: about the U.S. border in our next segment, but I wanted to ask you from the perspective of El Salvador, I mean, migration used to be something that was coming from El Salvador, but how has Bukele kind of impeta- impacted Salvadorans' desire to leave the country, is that something they're still doing? Could that also be something that would continue or
2: increase again if things go wrong? Uh, One quick thing which is interesting about immigration is a lot of the gangs, MS-13, um, and, and uh, 18, they both, um, they actually grew out of, um, El Salvadorans that were repatriated, that had served time in jail in the 1980s in Los Angeles. And they took, they, they learned, I guess, on the job there and took their gang building skills back to El Salvador. And that's why we see, um, the problem. And indeed, you know, since that time, immigration to the United States or migration to the United States has, has spiked because of violence, um, because of the lack of opportunity, uh, it has sort of trailed off right now. The truth is, is there are fewer, Uh, El Salvadorans crossing the border. Now it's mostly Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans and Cubans. So it has been effectively that. And what's curious is despite all the concerns over human rights, despite the concerns over violating the constitution to allow Bukele to run for a second term, consecutive term, um, the assistant secretary of state for the Western hemisphere in the United States met with Bukele and said, let the voters decide. And the reason for that is precisely because in this election year in the United States, President Biden needs to have immigration under control. So they're willing to sort of turn a blind eye to Bukele's clear democratic violations in order to basically stem the flow of migrants across the U.S. border.
1: Very interesting. Thanks very much, Chris. That was Christopher Sabatini from Chatham House. Now here's Monocle's Emma Searle with day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Chris. Australian writer Yang Jung has been handed a suspended death sentence by a Chinese court five years after he was arrested on spying charges. Beijing has not publicised the details of the accusations against Yang. More than 100 people have been killed by forest fires in Chile, as authorities warn that the death toll could rise, with hundreds still missing. Whole neighbourhoods in the suburbs of coastal cities Vina del Mar and Valparaiso have been destroyed. And Parisians have voted to triple parking rates for SUVs in the French capital. The proposals were approved by more than 54% of voters in a Sunday referendum, although the turnout was just 6%. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris.
1: Thanks very much, Emma. Now, it's been a very busy few days for the U.S. military, who have been striking targets across Iraq, Syria and Yemen since Friday – All the while back home in Washington, politicians have been bickering over exactly how to get foreign military aid through a bitterly divided Congress and secure the U.S. border. Senators have now reached a deal on a major funding package, but the bill is dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. What to help us unpack all of this? We are joined by Washington reporter Simon Marks. Simon... Let's start with the first part of this. What sort of conversations are you hearing in D.C. about the impact of the weekend strikes?
0: Uh, Well, there is growing pressure here, Chris, on President Biden uh, to appear publicly and explain his strategy in the Middle East, given that uh, the President, and again over the weekend National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, insisted that the Biden administration does not want to be drawn into a wider conflict in the region. Nonetheless, the United States is now actively uh, conducting airstrikes and bombing three separate countries, Yemen, of course, where uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are jointly going after the Houthi rebels in a bid to safeguard merchant vessels in the Red Sea that the Houthis have been attacking. Uh, And now uh, U.S. military action in Iraq and eastern Syria, reprisals, of course, uh, for the killing uh, last weekend of three American service personnel in Jordan in a drone strike that the U.S. says was carried out by Iranian proxies. Uh, Progressive left wing Democrats on Capitol Hill uh, say that the president is engaged in unacceptable action, particularly against the Houthis, because he hasn't sought congressional approval and hasn't proved that there is an imminent threat to the United States, the threshold uh, for which the president would be able to uh, authorize military action without congressional approval. Right-wing Republicans, hawkish Republicans, accuse the Biden administration of appeasing Iran by telegrams the action that it was going to take uh, against Iran-backed militias in Iraq and eastern Syria uh, and in some cases on Capitol Hill Republicans argue uh, that the President ought to be much more muscular uh, and directly uh, taking the conflict to the Iranians on Iranian soil Uh, so President Biden is under criticism from all sides and has largely been silent on all of these issues at a time when many Americans uh, are curious as to why the US is getting militarily embroiled in three separate nations indirectly targeting a fourth Iran and simultaneously saying that it doesn't want to be drawn into that widening conflict.
1: Well, so that is one side of this, Simon, and we'll be waiting to see whether and when uh, Joe Biden speaks to that strategy. The other side of this is what's happening in Congress over the weekend. The Senate has agreed this Massive, over $100 billion funding package for Ukraine, Israel, Asia-Pacific allies, and changes to the U.S. border policy. How has that been received?
0: well as you said earlier according to the speaker of the house of representatives mike johnson of course a republican uh, this bill will be dead on arrival if it gets to the house of representatives and it's not even clear at this point uh, that the bill can necessarily advance out of the senate but all of this is indicative uh, of the fact that first of all this is very much a presidential election year and so everyone involved in all of these discussions members of the house the senate and of course the white House are very aware of the political uh, implications of the explosive uh, nature of the subject that they're discussing, the uh, efforts by more than 8,500 people to cross America's southern border every single day. Uh, And all of this is directly tied now to the future of U.S. uh, funding and backing, uh, particularly for Ukraine, but also potentially for Israel, uh, with President Volodymyr. Zelensky nervously wondering whether agreement is going to be struck on Capitol Hill to unlock additional funding uh, for Ukrainian forces and for his administration in Kiev. Now this plan uh, definitely uh, according to uh, the vast majority observers is one of the toughest uh, efforts to crack down on uh, illegal crossings over America's southern border that the country has ever seen. Uh, It wants to shut the border down after an average of 5,000 migrants have crossed uh, every single day over the course of a week. So that would see uh, a pretty substantial reduction in the numbers of people crossing uh, the border. But it doesn't meet uh, many Republican demands, uh, including uh, the uh, possibility of limiting parole for asylum seekers uh, and uh, also providing the president with uh, the ability under certain circumstances to override the provisions contained in this legislation Uh, and uh, of course uh, Donald Trump-backed Republicans particularly in the House of Representatives are arguing that this simply uh, is not the closed door policy uh, regarding illegal immigration that they uh, want to see on America's borders. Uh, So it's going to run into definitely uh, problematic political headwinds in both the Senate and the House of Representatives which means that in Ukraine, those nervous days and weeks are likely to stretch on for a good while longer.
1: Simon Marks there, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Indonesia's presidential election is entering its final stages and the three candidates vying to replace incumbent Joko Widodo could not be more different. The three have held their last televised debate before Indonesians head to the polls in about two weeks' time, and a lot of it has been about the legacy of Indonesia's outgoing president. Well, Aaron Cook is a Jakarta-based journalist and author of Dari Mulet Ke Mulet, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. Aaron, let's start with how popular Joko Widodo himself is as he prepares to leave office. Are the candidates kind of running towards or away from his record?
4: He remains remarkably popular. He was swept in in 2014, swept in again in 2019. And there were plenty of supporters asking for him to, to head on over to the constitutional court and try for a third period. So to secure uh, the support of Jokowi is widely seen as to win the race. All three of them have Uh, very long, very deep links with Jokowi, and all three of them have been leaning on those links. Um, We're starting to see Anis Bazwadan. He's the the former governor of Jakarta. He's starting to shift away, but the other two candidates, uh, one of whom is running with Jokowi's son and the other who is running with Jokowi's party, are both relying very heavily on Jokowi's previous um, programs and his sort of plans for the years ahead.
1: It it is interesting, exactly as you described there, that one of them is running with Jokowi's son, the other is running with his party. I mean, what does that say about kind of where Jokowi himself stands? How complicated has that been in this race?
4: It's been wildly comp- complicated and it just seems to be getting um, order and order. It hasn't worked out nicely for Jokowi's party, the PDIP. They have traditionally been, uh, since the fall of Zahado, one of, if not the most popular and powerful party in the country. And it was through them that Jokowi was so popularly brought into into government to begin with. But with Jokowi vying for more control of a party for his post-president career and is Megawarik Putri still leading the party, herself a former president. He's kind of looking to build his own sort of dynasty to go ahead. So he's teamed up with Prabowo Subianto, his former challenger, um, who's now running with uh, President Jokowi's son.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It does make it very complicated. But tell us a bit (laughs) about this televised debate yesterday, the three candidates who were there. What are kind of their biggest differences, I suppose, and, and particularly on foreign policy, anything about kind of Indonesia's standing and, and place in the region?
4: Sure. So yesterday was the final one of five debates. Um, this one focused more on education, health, uh, culture, technology, that sort of nitty-gritty um, stuff that makes a really big impact on the lives of ordinary Indonesians, but doesn't make for great headlines. Um, and that focused primarily on uh, the continued... continue uh, continued of Jokowi's um, programs, particularly in school, addressing stunting for children um, and for pregnant women. Uh, But we did start to see the two running behind Prabowo and Nis and Ganja Pranowo, begin teaming up, Um, it's highly likely that this is going to go to a runoff election, at which point those two are widely expected to team up to uh, keep Prabowo out of the presidency. So these two are far more friendly with each other than usual Um, and Prabowo kind of took a step back. He's often been very, uh, how to put it, he's a very heavy-handed and confident man, (laughs) but he was a lot more measured last night and referred to both of the candidates as his brother's first and foremost.
1: So quite a friendly debate at the end of the day between them. Just one other thing uh, I wanted to ask you about, Erin, and that's Jokowi's sort of biggest legacy project, the new capital city in Borneo. What is happening with that? What might happen with that, depending on who's elected?
3: All
4: three candidates throughout the the campaign period have, with varying degrees of enthusiasm, committed to uh, continuing with the project. It is. Doesn't look like there are many biters, though. Jokowi's been running around both Indonesia and the world trying to secure investment for the last couple of years. And with a few sort of big ticket exceptions, there isn't all that much interest. So it'd be very interesting to see whether promising to continue with the new capital is just a way to show your allegiance with Jokowi before election or if it's something that any of the candidates truly believe in.
1: Just quickly to follow up on that, is it something the people want at all as well? I mean, where do the people stand on moving Indonesia's capital from uh, to Borneo? Uh,
4: I think the best way to put it is uh, Hayat Indriatno. He's a fantastic environmentalist journalist here in Jakarta. The first time I ever brought up this with him, he said, don't worry about it. This will be the first time you hear it, but you're going to hear it every six months if you ever live in Indonesia. There's uh, kind of a, a belief that, this is, you know, it was first floated during Sukarno's years. A um, few people, I think, believe that will truly actually happen.
1: Aaron Cook, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to the briefing on Monaco Radio. <laughs> You are back with The Briefing on Monaco Radio. I'm Chris Chermak, and it's time now for a look at the day's international papers with our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. He joins me here in studio. We will start with fashion, going a little bit from heavy to light in this show. What can you tell us about a big merger in Brazil?
5: Well, uh, I, sp- I picked up a story on o Estadão, actually, but they were th- the report was actually that this was going to happen, and it just did. Breaking news. One hour ago, uh, two large fashion groups in Brazil, Arezo and Soma, they merged. Uh, so basically, after the merger, so they will be worth about 2.43 billion euros, which will make them the second largest fashion conglomerate in Brazil so this is huge news Chris and you know we were talking as well before about how is the situation with mergers in Brazil this one there's no controversy to it at least until now but it's been the largest in the retail sector since 2011 so it's big news for the Brazilian fashion
1: industry could, could they challenge for number one is that would that be their hope I,
5: I I think there is potential there but I think one of the reasons they are doing that as well we have for example the Chinese retailer uh, she in you know so they're doing so well in Brazil. Uh, and and, and is making a bit harder for Brazilian groups to compete with that. So I think with this merger, I think they will have more know-how, they'll have more kind of financial investment uh, for the brands. They'll have perhaps a, a larger presence online, which I think, you know, that's that's part of the plan as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why they did it as well.
1: Mm. Is that talked about a lot in Brazil, this sort of competition from Asia? Is oh, very
5: much. It and, it, and it happens so quickly. I mean, uh, you know, Shane is so it's huge in Brazil. lot of people they own pieces and of course you know the price is very good so I think uh, sometimes you know the Brazilian products becoming a little bit more expensive as well so there's all sorts of discussions happening perhaps we should tax them a little bit more or not you know that's that's definitely part of the conversation there.
1: Something happening in a lot of places. Well let's move on from fashion to film an interesting report on Netflix's plans for Brazil in 2024 this year
5: Yes in the cultural pages of Folha de São Paulo and I think it's going to be a big year for Netflix in Brazil. There is one product in specific, uh, which is a series about Ayrton Senna, or a Formula One driver, mm. beloved by many, and it will be a big budget production. And, and be- Formula
1: One is huge everywhere at the moment, too, for that matter.
5: Absolutely. So I think, you know, uh, and, and that's what this report was saying. So, Netflix Brazil, of course, they want to do shows for Brazilians, including Cena the new version of Love is Blind, which is doing very well in Brazil. But in this report, it's saying that a lot of Brazilian shows are doing very well internationally, in Europe, in Africa. And they even said in the United States, which is a difficult country to crack the top 10, but some Brazilian series managed to do that. I'm very proud of that, actually. Was there a
1: particular one that you would recommend there or that Ye- is doing extremely well?
5: Yes, uh, there is one that, it, well, after the translation, it would be called burn betrayal, And I actually have a little clip of it, and I'll tell you the story after. Let's have a listen. <laughs>
1: I feel like we're in your global countdown at the yes, moment yes. for that clip, but, but what, what was that about?
5: So basically, the series is about an accountant. Uh, basically, she sees her fiancé cheating as an opportunity for a sexual awakening. Uh, so in, in a way, actually, it's weird because if you translate uh, properly, it would be the good side of being cheated on. But that's that's <laughs> not the name they chose for the international version, but huge hit, including a top 10 in the United States, Chris. All
1: right. All right. That will be one to check out clearly before. <laughs> Before you go, Faye, we do have to talk a little about the Grammys, something we did also cover on The Globalist today. But what was your take on the Grammys last night?
5: I mean, I think it's everyone's take here. But what a great year for female artists at the Grammy as well. Uh, basically, the top four awards, they were all, all went to women. I think that's remarkable. And Taylor Swift, the only artist to win four times the album of the year. But if I if I may say to you, Chris, m- the most emotional moment for me was Celine Dion presenting the album of the year. Everybody's worried she had to cancel her tours for health reasons. So, you know, she hasn't been seen in public that much. Uh, so I think that was quite a nice and, and beautiful emotional moment of the Grammys.
1: There were a few of those kind of interesting appearances, mm. weren't there? Also, Tracy Chapman yes. returning. That was a kind of special one as well. Some of these sort of... Oh, artists that have been around for a long time don't even necessarily perform that much live but that we're back.
5: And what a voice, Tracy Chapman as well. And, and I think she was just tweeting because I think her song is actually number one on iTunes now because I mean, people are kind of rediscovering her and not that she was ever forgotten but it's been a great year uh, for her as well. No,
1: absolutely, because there was a cover that came out yes. kind of her song. Everyone was singing along to that one. Very exciting. Well, Faye, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Well, finally, on today's show here in London, last night marked the Critics Circle Awards, sort of precursor to the BAFTAs and the Oscars for the film industry. Our entertainment correspondent, Laura Kramer, was there and she joins me now here in studio. Hello, Laura.
3: Well, hello, Chris. How are you? (laughs) I'm
1: very good.
3: Thank you. I wasn't the only one. Can I just say Fernando was also there?
1: Fernando was also there, yeah. and he also though covered the Grammys so that you don't have to cover the Grammys and you can talk about the Critics Circle <laughs> Awards. What what was it all about last night?
3: It was a lot of fun. I was there on the red carpet to speak to the winners and the nominees. And so this award show is very special because the nominee nominations and, and winners are chosen by a 210 members selected by the Critics uh, Film Association in the UK. It's the UK's largest standing and most prestigious prestigious critics association. And so it makes it different than, in a way, other awards shows for that reason. The films are automatically eligible if they came from... Last February to this February now, so just, I guess we're in February now. Which January felt like ages, but here we are, <laughs> still in the midst of award season, Chris.
1: Absolutely, always in the midst of award season. <laughs> what was the ceremony like for you? You mentioned the red carpet. What what kind of made that different as well from some of the other award shows?
3: Um, it was chaos. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was really good. It was just, it's very busy. A lot of people were there. Um, there were two really big stars there, who were Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal. And then we got to watch the ceremony, which is where I sat with Fernando watching it all happen before us. And it was just, yeah, it's a really fun show. I have to say, I've covered this one a few times in different ways. It's always a really good time. And what I really like is they really focus on British and Irish films, actually. They do have a very international scope, but they do like to really also focus on more homegrown talent and the productions that are happening in the UK and Ireland.
1: Well, speaking of that, you did speak to some of the winners, starting with one of those who you just mentioned, Andrew Scott.
3: That's right. So All of Us Strangers picked up three awards. This includes Best Actor, the British-Irish Film of the Year, and the British-Irish Performance. That was for Paul Mescal. But it was Andrew Scott, who I briefly alluded to before as Hot Priest from Fleabag, (laughs) he won the Best Actor Award. And, you know, I spoke to him about how basically awards season Can impact a film, and he told me it's crucial for its life cycle.
2: You know, all these award shows are really exciting, but you know, the the purpose of them is to honor the films, but it's also to get people to go and see them. So um, I just feel like this film is going to be around forever. I really do feel that, and uh, because people want to go back and see it a few times already, and it's only been a few months.
1: Have you been to see it, Laura? Speaking of that.
3: I am planning to this week, actually, but I'm very scared, Chris, because like he said, many people are loving it. But I've also heard that you leave broken (laughs) as a person out of this film. So I have to be in the right frame of mind. Now, another film that... Speaking
1: of leaving broken, (laughs) we're now moving to another film that is quite difficult to watch, but important.
3: Exactly. So this is Zone of Interest. It's about a commander of Auschwitz and his wife who are trying to build a dream home kind of close to uh, one of the camps. Camps, and that picked up three awards last night, including um, the Best Film of the Year, the Director and the Technical Achievement Award. Now, that award went to Johnny Byrne, and he's the sound designer who won the Technical Achievement Award for the film. He is also the sound designer on Poor Things. Now, that is directed by Yorgos Lathimos, the Greek director, and he told me about the moment that that film, Poor Things, got 11 Oscar nominations.
0: I was at the office, offices of Element Poor Things Production Company in Ireland when the nominations were read out, and um, it was such a joyous occasion because British and Irish films doing so well in, in America. In terms of brief on Poor Things, I didn't actually get one. It was it, with your with all his collaborators, he creates an enormous environment for you to be able to have fun and do your job. And, and if you understand his filmmaking, then you're in his gang, and that's what he wants you to
1: do—to do your best work. You know? so, Laura, to his point there about sort of the Oscars and the excitement from that, how good is the critics' circle at telegraphing kind of the other awards?
3: It's interesting because from my experience, from the ones that I have covered, I've not seen a whole lot of crossover. There were a few. And, you know, for example, Olivia Colman uh, won for The Favourite for Best Actress. I think Emma Stone is looking. She also won for mm. Poor Things last night. She wasn't in attendance, but it's looking like she's also the favourite two-win. Uh, going into uh, this, the Oscars in March. In my experience, I have felt that there hasn't been a whole wider crossover, just a few of the more ones that you kind of expect. Now, one film that is expected to do very well at the Oscars is Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan. Now, he was nominated, as was the film last night. It walked away with zero awards, which is really unheard of for the rest of the award season. Mm. That's been the one to beat, right? As has, you know, Barbies also picked up a few... Now, interestingly, the, t- the team from Barbie was there, that Sarah Greenwood and Katie Spencer, they worked on the set design. And I spoke to them, you know, they didn't end up winning in their category, but I spoke to them about this weird time that we're in post-strike, how things are kind of coming along. And they said it is crucial now to think about the next generation of craftsmen
0: in film. When we're at boom time, we need to train more people because we have, without doubt, we have one of the best and, and most you know, successful industries, film industries in the world, and we just need to keep on training people. Absolutely. Up I mean, we have a lot of courses and like, you know, for designers and things like that, but it's the, it's the crafts and the trades that need to come in underneath as well.
3: I think we sometimes forget that films, it's not about the stars and the directors. It's so many other people that make them. It's these craftsmen, experts in what they do. And I think the general feeling was last night, look, it feels like the calm before the storm because post-strike, we're finishing up all these projects we needed to. But now we're about to hit this really big wall where we are grasping for sound stages and people. And that's kind of what we're going to be expecting to see in the production schedule. It's sort ahead. of dealing
1: with this entire backlog, right, that's Exactly. It's kind of coming out and kind of moving forward with that. In this exactly.
3: They said it still kind of feels like a hiatus in this moment, but partly that is also due to award season because so many teams are traveling and you have to schmooze everybody to try to get as much possible for your film. But yeah, we'll see what happens post-Oscars in March.
1: Well, Laura, we'll be back to you, I'm sure, for more as the Oscars come closer. Thank you very much. That was Laura Kramer, and that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Aequay, and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermack. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.